0: Well, I'm thankful for Ellie and Elijah uh, being here and being members of our church to fill in when I preach now, so I don't have to do both of those things at the same time. Uh, plus, I enjoy y'all leading for us, so we I appreciate it, and I believe our church uh, appreciates that. I'm going to try to do this. Last time I preached, Shauna was like, yeah, your slides didn't work till the very last one. I was like, oh. So hopefully, if you see me hitting this and it's not working. Somebody go like that and I'll try to get it over. Um, so I've enjoyed the last couple of weeks uh, hearing about the Holy Spirit being preached. Um, and I think anytime that we get the opportunity to hear about the Godhead being preached, it should set us in awe and wonder at at just how awesome God is. Today we're going to uh, you 'll hear things that overlap from what Nathan has preached on, and probably what Stu will preach on next week because we can we can divide up the aspects of the Holy Spirit, but he is one person and has one major like task and that 's to to glorify Christ and do what the father said and so you 're going to hear things that overlap just because he is the he is unified um, just like I have a job at the ranch and I I'm a pastor here, so I have things that are distinct, but I'm still the same person. So my my life will overlap in different places. And today we're going to look at the Holy Spirit and our relationships. And I just want to give a disclaimer that this will not cover all the problems or questions you might have about relationships. There's no way we would be here for uh, years, um, a lifetime. However, I think that the Holy Spirit. Is, uh, has a distinct role in a lot of things that have to do with our relationships that there's, there's one specific thing that's like an umbrella and I hope that we look at that today and you can walk away saying well at least I know a little bit more about that um, that would be the goal we are going to be in the book of Ephesians and so we're also going to spend some time in Matthew but those will be up there on the screen so if you just find your place in Ephesians chapter 5 and now you look at this And most of you have probably heard sermons on this passage of Scripture. uh, Probably a different sermon or multiple sermons on each portion. And today, I have the unruly task of going through all of it. So I'm going to go through it. And so there's going to be parts of it that you're like, yeah, well, he didn't talk about that. Well, find those other sermons online and that might be helpful. Uh, Because today I'm I'm trying to to give us a broad view. We're going to be like... Up in a jetliner way above the earth looking at this. Um, So, I want to kind of give us an idea and an explanation of Ephesians just to kind of get into this. That Ephesians is about the church. And so, when we hear from Ephesians, when we hear what Paul says to the Ephesians, he is speaking about relationships between believers. So there's even other aspects of our relationships with unbelievers or aspects with, say, the government and things like that that the Bible talks about, but that's not what we're going to cover today. Those are found in like Romans 12 or 1 Peter 2. There are other passages to go to for those. But today we want to see how the Holy Spirit works in our relationships with fellow believers um, or in the family setting of a, a believing family setting. And so when you when you look at Ephesians, you you may have heard me say this before and you've I believe Nathan has said it before, too, or, or Stu, that when you look at Ephesians, it's almost divided right in the middle, the first three chapters and then the second three chapters. And the first three kind of look at what Nathan talked about for the last two weeks. The Holy Spirit's work in regeneration, the Trinity's work in in, in uh, salvation. What, did I say regeneration? I said regeneration, right? Yes, in regeneration, uh, not, I don't know what I'm saying. Um, the, the salvific, justification-centered outlook is chapters 1 through 3. But then you get into 4 through 6, and you see the practical outworking of who God says that we are, and so this is now who we should be. So he says that we are this, and so now we should live like this. And right smack, in the dab, sm- smack dab in the middle of that, at Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, is what Nathan put on the church app this week. It says now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. It's like Paul through the Holy Spirit knew that we would we would need to be reminded of chapters one through three before he called us to action in chapters four through six. Because he knew that in order to to do and to be all that he was about to call us to do. We had to be told who we really were, who, who, we, who we were before Christ, what He has done in us, and now we know that we have this ability to do what He's called us to do, because He saved us and He's called us His own. And so, he, he, he tells us all that, and then He tells right before He starts getting into the heavy stuff of, now this is how you should be, He knows that He's about to ask them to do things that are very hard, He says, but God can do more than you ask or think far more abundantly than all you can ask or think. And you might be coming here today and thinking, okay, I'm in a difficult relationship right now. I got somebody at work that we just don't jive together. Everything that we do clashes. And I I need some help. Well, God says that think about the best picture that you can think about how that relationship could be. And God can do far more better than that. He can do things far greater than what you might be praying for. That doesn't necessarily mean that he will act in the exact way that you want him to. But what he does will be far greater than than what it is right now. That he is going to seek or he is going to receive the glory from that that is far greater than anything we can ask or think. And then we 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 hear about the Holy Spirit in Ephesians, and I'm not going to go through these, but the, I'll put them up here on the screen for a second. That in just six chapters, a total of 155 verses, the Holy Spirit comes up. In every chapter, and he's mentioned at least one time, but total of 12 times. And today I want us to think about the, the last two. Let me get through there, I'm sorry. I'm going to skip because I want to make sure we, we get through the things. In chapter 518, he says we are to be filled by the Spirit. And in chapter 617, he says we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and we are to pray at all times in the Spirit. And that is right smack in the middle of those two, those two passages are the family code that we talk about today. So it's like he is, he is reminding us that the Holy Spirit has to be completely involved in all of this. And not, not only is the Holy Spirit mentioned throughout Ephesians, but there's another major theme, which is power. And we are given the power of God through the Spirit. It is a power that is immeasurably great, it is active. It is personally given through the Spirit that every, every one of us who, who says that we are a believer, we have this power. We have the Spirit working in us. And it is Him working in us for His ultimate glory. But then another major theme is might or strength. And you're like, those are kind of the same thing. And yeah, they, they kind of are. But might or strength, the way that, that I'm understanding from this passage is that those are the active working of that power. Is, is strength. We have that strength. Now, if you were to look at this in a scientific term, power would be like the potential energy. You have all this stuff stored up. And the, the strength and the might is that kinetic energy. It's actually working out in you. You're actually doing what that power says you can do. And so through the, the Holy Spirit... These things are, are in us. We have the ability, even though we are, we are asked to do very hard things, we are, we are deep in the middle of very difficult relationships, we have the Holy Spirit and we have the power and the strength that we need to do what He has asked us to do, even if we don't understand how it will work out. And so I want to encourage us that, that He's not just calling us to action without giving us what we need. Because this is, this is what's awesome. Not only does the Lord give you the commands to do, but He makes them possible to obey and carry out through the giving of Himself to us. So not only does He call us to this action, but then He gives you what you need to be able to fulfill what He has called you to do. Not in yourself, but through the Holy Spirit. And so we, we have to ask, well, if all that's true, so... Why are relationships so difficult? And we have to go all the way back to Genesis 3 for that. Um, We have to understand when Adam and Eve fell into temptation, shame and fear also entered the picture, and that disrupts everything. Shame and fear are the waves that disrupt all the water. And Adam and Eve hid from the Lord as he walks in the garden, and when he speaks to them, that They begin to pass the blame for their sin. Well, it was this woman that you gave me. and it was, this, it was the serpent. He deceived me. They did not take responsibility. And God curses all three of them. And he says in Genesis 3.16, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Sin brought destruction to our relationships. Their relationship with God was broken, and their relationship with each other was broken. This is the root of why we have dysfunctional relationships. Even among believers, this is why we struggle with this. The Lord God tells Eve that her desire will be contrary to her husband. And that just doesn't mean oh, there's going to be some disagreements, but this is, this is stating that all of a sudden the the, the task that He had given her of submission that was a good blessing to be under a good authority now is a task and a burden. Now it's hard for her to do that. Now she will want to usurp his authority. And now there will be that temptation to to, uh, fight against it. She will be contrary to Adam. And he tells Adam that as the husband, he was told that now he will rule over her. His sin has led him to ruling with a heavy yoke. He doesn't lead in wisdom and love, and she doesn't submit and follow his good leadership in humility and meekness. Because of the fall of man into sin, we are all broken. From original sin that is multiplied by our own sin, the part of the curse that comes to us is broken relationships. We must battle against a sinful flesh to make relationships work in the way that God has made them to work, and it'll be a battle that you and I face till the day we die. And so, there's nobody in this room that can't say, "Well, I, I just I don't have any problems in any of my relationships." I think if you look far enough, you will find something somewhere. But God, the favorite two two uh, word statement in Ephesians. God doesn't leave us there. There is hope for the, for the Lord does not leave us to figure this out on our own. And so he's also called us to, to see and to understand that our relationships are made for our sanctification. So there's a... Uh, uh, I lost my place. The believer, we're not left there. He's given us His Word to lead us into righteous, fruitful relationships. And He works through relationships to sanctify us. Now, it isn't your job to run around looking for problems in other people's life so that you can jab them with Scripture and claim that you're there for their sanctification. I've actually heard people say that. Well, I'm just here for your sanctification. No, we we are to to be genuinely in the lives of other people. And when we are we won't have to go far before they have to come to you for your sin or you have to go to them for something that you've seen if you truly care about them. If you truly love them, you will, you will speak the truth in love to, to help them to get out of whatever sin that you see is going on. And if they truly love you, they should come to you. This is how iron sharpens iron. This is how God builds His church through the Spirit and through the Word of God. Now, I know in a, in a room this size, there's somebody that says, Hang on, if they have a problem against me, then they need to come to me. Or somebody says, uh, But it's not my job to point out somebody else's sin. The Bible says, Don't judge. But what does the Bible really say? There is something that Robert Jones, who's a biblical counselor, he calls the Matthew 5 and 18 dynamic. Matthew 5 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. If you know that you've offended somebody, or that they are offended by something that you've done, you have a responsibility to go. It says you must pursue reconciliation. Go and confess your sin, and seek to have that relationship restored. But... We also see, God didn't turn the right slide. Here we go. Matthew 18 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And so the, the Holy Spirit calls us through the Word of God to go whether we are the offender or whether we're the one that's been offended. We don't get off. We're not, we're not excluded because God is using us in the lives of each other for a purpose. He does not leave us on our own. This is actually a good work that the Lord calls us to do. I did not say it was easy or fun, but it is a good work that the Lord calls us to do. And if we have the goal of reconciling and we are seeking to obey in the Spirit of God, then this will change how we will go. For Galatians 6 tells us to go in gentleness... Ephesians 4 tells us to speak the truth in love. Those two things, gentleness and love, are salves that work to heal a broken relationship. When you go in gentleness, you go in love, people aren't so quick to stand off. But when you correct somebody, most of the time they're not going to like it. Would you agree? (laughs) I don't. Even if I know somebody's coming in love, it's hard for me to hear it's hard for me to, to address that. But I know that if they come in gentleness and love, that I know that they are, they are coming um, to do the Lord's work. In the Spirit of God, you can go in gentleness and peace with the desire of gaining your brother. And this leads to your sanctification, and it leads to their sanctification. So we have, we have this Matthew 5.18 dynamic. So we're, we're not let off the hook. And so this is how the Holy Spirit works um, in sanctification with us, or through us. So, the Bible commands us to love God and love others. In fact, the Lord states that all the law and the prophets hang upon this, or depend upon this. He says in Matthew 22, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The Bible tells us that we must love others. But he uses the personal pronoun of you. You, you cannot love God and others. If you love yourself, there's not enough room in there. When we love ourselves, we fill it up to the top. Like we don't we don't make any room for anybody else. We fill it up with us. And he says, if you're going to love God and love others, you you have to empty yourself out. You have to be uh, humbling of yourself. The Holy Spirit works in sanctifying us through relationships by beginning with us. In relational conflict, most of the time, it's very easy to point the finger. For we've been offended, and that sticks out so blatantly in our minds. Adam and Eve did this in Genesis 3, and they were in a perfect environment. So think about the broken environment that we are in, how much harder or how much more likely we are going to do the same thing. They were in a perfect environment, and they still passed the blame. And so we are going to, to point at other people, but we must be redirected to look at ourselves and see how we are guilty. I think it was Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker. I, th- I think this was him that said that. You may be only 10% of the problem, but you are 100% responsible before God for that 10%. So you may have only done a little bit of the problem. You may have only reacted ill one time, But God says you're 100% responsible for that. He holds you accountable for that. And so He calls you to examine yourself first. And we see in the the verse that I sideways uh, quoted a minute ago, Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaches on this. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. How often do you hear that verse? All the time. Judge not, so you're not going to be judged. But that's not exactly what he's saying. He says, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. So he's really saying, be careful how you judge. Be careful how you go to that person, especially if you have what he says next. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye? when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is a warning to us. How can we go to someone about their sin when we haven't dealt with our own? How can we call someone to a repentance that we have not sought ourselves? And pay attention to how he uses the log and the speck. He says, your brother has the speck, but you have the four by four sticking out of your head. Like just picture that. Like it's kind of humorous. Like how in the world are you going to go to a surgeon that has this big old board sticking out of his eye and expect him to work on you? It's not wise. I wouldn't do it. He needs to take the the board out of his own eye before he can deal with the speck in somebody else's. But note that he doesn't say that we should not go after that speck. He says take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of theirs. And I have to say, we have to understand that there's, there's two things here that happen when we examine ourselves. Sometimes the speck isn't an issue once you remove your log. The speck you see in somebody else's eye may not be an issue once you remove your log. You realize that the issue isn't even an issue once you've humbly confessed your sin. And two... When you make confession and repentance for your sin, the other person, not always, but often is softened to hear from you regarding their sin. Because you've, you've broken the you've ice, icebreakers. <laughs> you've made it softer. You've already confessed your sin. And now they're willing to hear, like, he's, he's humbly submitted himself. Like, he's, he's telling things that he's never said before. Maybe I should listen to him. Maybe he does have something good to say. And in the New Testament, later on, Paul also teaches what Christ taught. But he, he uses a different terminology. He uses the put-off, put-on terminology. This is in Ephesians 4. If you want to look there, in Ephesians 4, in verses um, 20 through Uh, 24. He's telling them that they are no longer to live like the Gentiles do. He tells them that they should be putting this off. He says they should not be living in sensuality and greedy uh, to practice every kind of impurity. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He tells them that they have to be putting off that old man. And this is the same way as getting the log out of your own eye. The Spirit teaches us the very same thing that the Lord taught us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, as He's teaching here in Ephesians 4. Now the word to put off means to cast away. You are taking it off, you're laying it aside, you're done with it. N- not to return. It- it's like it- it's gone forever. Like a uh, snake's skin being been, been uh, shedded. Like he doesn't get back in that skin. He-, he removes it and he's done with it. And the word to put on means to clothe yourself, to in- invest yourself, to array yourself with this new uh, clothing. And you and I are unable to do this in our own effort. We can have behavior modification. We can make changes that will last for a certain amount of time. But truly, if our heart hasn't changed, if our heart hasn't put off that old way, we haven't really changed. Jay Adams asks, and he's a biblical counselor. He says, how can a liar stop being a liar? And this comes from later on in (coughs) Ephesians 4.25. He says, is it when he stops lying no, for then he will simply be an unemployed liar. The liar stops being a liar when he puts on the biblical alternative of speaking the truth with his neighbor. Only when the word, when the word has renewed our mind and we begin living according to its truth, can we say that we have put off the old man and we're putting on a new man. If you simply stop doing the old things, but you haven't done anything else that God has called you to do, you haven't put on anything else. You've just, you're an unemployed liar. And think about, uh, look at Ephesians 4.28. It says, uh, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Putting off stealing and putting on honest work and labor to share with those in need. And then Ephesians 4, 29-32, you put off corrupting talk and put on grace-filled, encouraging talk. Ephesians 4, 31-32, you put off wicked feelings of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and and, and those those emotions and you put on Christ-like love for others. If you simply just try to stop being wrathful or stop being angry, it's not... Christ-likeness. You have to put on love for somebody else. And so when we do this, three things happen. One, it pleases God. Because it begins with our heart and has a lasting change as it uproots that corruption of the old man. And you're, you're putting in new roots that go down deep. And then the Spirit starts producing fruits in you. You're pleasing God because you're now acting like Christ. But two, it also glorifies God in the eyes of others. When others see this change in your life, there's no doubt that God is working on your heart. They start asking, what's going on with you? You, You're different. Think about the way that the, the disciples responded to Paul when he first showed up as a disciple and not a persecutor. It says they were confounded. They were like, what is he saying? This is the man that came to kill us. And now he's coming and telling us that what we say is right. And he ends up becoming like the leading missionary planning churches all over Asia Minor. They were confounded at the change that happened in Paul's life. So it glorifies God in the eyes of others. And thirdly, it proves that we are his. It's a test. When you see yourself putting off the old man, and you review your life, and you're like, Man, I'm not not like that anymore. And, And I'm striving to love these people that I used to not be able to love. That's a sign that the Holy Spirit is truly working in you. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If it does not start with you in your own heart, then you will never live in a relationship with others as God commands. The Word of God puts the self, we have self up here before Christ, and it puts it in the proper perspective. We are placed underneath God and others. So the, the pattern or the right perspective is, is restored. As believers, we are to live continually under the influence of the Spirit. And He's the one that's uh, teaching us the Word and reminding us of the Word so that we may live by it and be filled with that Word so that we can live it out. Dying to self, surrendering to God's will, depending on His power in all things, confessing known sin, dying to self. And if you do not see these things present in your life, then you do not know Christ and the Spirit is not in you. The Word of God says that. And so now we, we, we look at all of that to get here. This is why I said it's not going to be the deepness that you might be expecting when we get to this family code. But we see that Paul's order is also precise. Because the Word of God is taking what, what we create as our order and putting it in the right, right alignment. God is first. Then, according to Ephesians 5... Our marriage is next, then our kids and our parenting, and then work. Jay Adams says, work may not destroy the family. Family may not destroy the marriage. A lot of times we get it we get it discombobulated. We get it mixed up. Work is first because we got to we got to provide for our family. We got to we got to do what the boss says so that we can we can keep our job. Or our kids become first. And then we as married couples drift apart because our kids are the focus rather than our marriage. This is where we come to the second thing. that The Holy Spirit works to sanctify us in relationships by beginning with me and then flowing out to others. He works to sanctify us by beginning with me and flowing out to others. Uh. One book on, on biblical counseling on relationships says the fatal flaw of human wisdom is that it promises that you can change your relationships without needing to change yourself. The fatal flaw of human wisdom is that it promises that you can change your relationships without needing to change yourself. The Holy Spirit must begin working on our hearts, our hearts first, and through that, he begins to reverse that curse that was way back in Genesis three where she will be contrary to her husband and he will rule over her. God begins to change that that curse, reversing it back. But it won't ever be fully changed until we die and we see him face to face. That means that you and I will fight with this for our whole life, fighting to be in the Spirit's power, dying to self and living to Christ, learning daily how to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Listen to this C.S. Lewis quote. Hopefully you can read it. It's a little smaller. When I have learnt, and that's the way he said it, not me. When I have learnt to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. He's telling us that when that with the Lord, um, when we, we love our spouse, our child, our friend better, when we actually love God first, when we seek to have our relationship with Him put accurate and put reconciled first, then all these other relationships get better. And he says, but when we choose to love them first and we put God later, actually we stop loving them because then we start needing them to fulfill something in us. Because actually we're actually loving ourselves. <clears throat> love for self grows like a cancer and it kills off all that is good. And the command here in Ephesians 5 for husbands and wives, must be understood completely in the power of the Spirit. Remember what I said, that Ephesians 5.18 tells us that we are to be filled by the Spirit. Ephesians 6 tells us that we are to walk by the Spirit and be uh, taking up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We were to be praying in the Spirit. And so smack dab in the middle of that is what is called the family code. And when we strive in relationships on our own, I just try to be better. I try to try to not be angry anymore, then I'm not succeeding in walking by the Spirit. I have to trust in Him to do those things in us. And we read in Ephesians 5.22, read this with me. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And the husband's here are like, yeah, get them. Um, and, and we 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 hear we hear this this stated, and we can we can preach about this, and we can say everybody needs to submit to their husband. And we can explain this to the greatest description that you've ever heard it. However,. He is saying, it says, it can be preached that you should submit because your husband is the head of the family like the Christ is over the church and all these are true. But if you're not growing in Christ through the power and wisdom of the spirit, if you're not examining yourself first, then self will still be alive and you will fight an endless losing battle to do what God calls you to do. The moment that trouble arises, you will fight, you will argue, you will disrespect, you will set off bombs in the middle of your marriage. But God calls you to strive for truth, for humility, for others others focused ministry. And when you die to yourself, you can see that God calls wives to be submissive to the good order that God has created, even if your husband isn't, isn't all that you think your husband should be. For the Spirit can give you strength to do this, as if you are doing this, he says, for the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the Spirit can give you that strength to serve as a faithful wife as unto the Lord. Let's look at the husband passage. It says, Husbands, love your wives in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the same story is true here. We can preach through every, every line of this, and we should... We should go through every line of this. You should study every line of this, especially men. I call you to do that. This should be your ultimate priority to live according to what this passage says. And we can, we can present that in the clearest form. But if, if you're not dying to yourself, then you are not loving your, your wife as Christ loved the church. Now you're like, hang on a second. He said love. I'm good with that. I can do that. But love here is not the ooey-gooey love that you had when you were dating. This love isn't the passionate love you had in your first years of marriage. This isn't even the brotherly love that you have with your friends down the street, that you're, you're tight with, you're good, that, like they know you real well, and you have, that, you have that, that good love with them. But this is the self-sacrificing, God-like love that is described in those verses of what Christ did for the church this is a, a God-like love. This is what they, what they would say is agape love. It is a love that will die for the other one, that will sacrifice time and money and emotion and will strive for the holiness of the other person. So think about it. How was Christ concerned over the souls of others? How did He live His life here on earth? As you read through the Gospels, how did He love others? He was good with offending them to a certain extent in love. Not to just make them mad, but to, to point them to truth. He gave of Himself. He gave up His life for the church. He suffered and bled on a cross for the church. This is the self-sacrificing love that all of us men in here, if we are married, we are called to be that for our wife. That is a burden that is great to bear. It makes me nervous to think about that. To think about how I love my wife and am I upholding this? And in truth, in myself, no, I am not. I am not able to. The only way that I can do this is when the Holy Spirit is working in me to renew me according to His Word that I may put off the, the bachelor, the self-centered guy I was before I was married, so that I can die to, to myself and, and care for my spouse the way that I should. And take the love that you have for yourself. Turn it towards your wife. Once again, you have not the power to do or be like this on your own. It is only completed in the Spirit working in you. Your role as a husband and wife in marriage is threefold, three, three different pictures here. In Ephesians 5, we, we see that your marriage is to picture Christ in the church. That you are, you are to display what it looks like for Christ to be here on this earth to the world around us. And when they see how your, your marriage relationship is, they get a glimpse of what it would be like to understand what Christ did for the church. But two, your marriage is to emulate the unity of the Trinity. Now, there's obviously not three of you in marriage. But the two, it says, become one. And your two minds become one. When you parent your kids, you don't say something different that your wife says. Like You have become one. That you are on the same page. You have different roles, but the same purpose. And three, your marriage is to further the sanctification of the other person as you yourself are sanctified. So ask yourself, does your marriage picture these things? And ask the Spirit to help you have the understanding in your life of the Word of God that you may live according to that, so that you may picture what Christ did for the church to a lost and dying world and to your kids. And then we come to the second part. Look at Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So parents, give me a second. I'm going to talk to the kids in the room. Kids, you're going to get a sermon. (laughs) I wish my kids were in here. They're back there. Um, Knox and Haddon, y'all listen up. There are are two commands here for kids. God makes it real simple. He tells you that your two jobs are to obey and to honor your parents. Obey and honor. And the command to obey, Paul Paul asks the question that most of you might ask, Why? Why should I do that? That's my son's favorite question, why? And, And Paul states, for this is right. This is what the Lord says to do for you to obey your parents, for you to honor your parents. And so th- this obedience has has two ideas. One, it's in truth. The only time that you have a right to disobey your parents is if your parents tell you to do something that the Bible says you shouldn't do. You hear that? That's kind of hard because you're like, what? but there's other things I just don't like. But that's not what it says. It only says that you're, you're able to disobey your parents if they lead you to do something that is outside what God said for you to do. As long as they are leading you to do what God says, you are to obey. And it says that you are to obey them, once again, as if, as if Jesus was right here and looking at you and telling you to do the same thing. That's how you're supposed to obey your parents. Is that hard? No. Sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it is. I know, I was a kid too. It was. And this is what you need to know. That for all of time, it has never been popular to obey your parents among your, your peers, among your friends. Your parents had the same issue. Like your grandparents had the same issue all the way back to the Old Testament. And we know this because... This is the temptation of the flesh. Well, I want to do it my way. Frank Sinatra wrote a song, "I Did It My Way," you know, and he was proud about that. And that, that has been the, the common thing that you'll probably hear if you go to any kind of secular school, if you go to a, a like a college or things like. Do it your own way. Don't you don't have to do whatever your parents said. You come up with your own plan. Come up. That's what you hear all over in our culture. But the Lord says. To obey your parents. For they are, hopefully, if they are believers, they're training you in in the way of the Lord. So, what does it mean to honor? And that might be a little harder of a word to say. You're like, yeah, I've heard that word before, and I'm still preaching to the kids, okay? Y'all listening? What does it mean to honor? That means that you honor your parents when, when you speak about them, when you talk to your friends about them. You talk to, about them in a positive way, in a good way, a gracious and respectful way. You honor them by saying, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and, and upholding who they are as, as your authority. And you're, you're, you're showing them respect. You submit to them. That means you do what they say. All of these things are honoring of your parents. And so, how do you talk about your parents to your friends how do you uh, describe your parents to your friends? Do you make fun of them? Do you respect your parents? Like, do you make fun of them or disrespect your parents? Do you seek to rebel against their authority at any opportune time? Like, when they're not looking, yep, I'm doing my own thing. Or if they're not in the room, are you still doing what they said? How do you speak to yourself about your parents? I remember growing up, me and my brother, we would, I don't know who said it first, so don't tell him I said this because it sounds like I'm calling him out. One of us said this. Our dad told us to do something, and one of us said, you know, you told me to to do this, but in, in my heart, I'm still sitting down. I'm still not doing it. I don't know which one of us said that. I know I had that attitude when I was a kid. But what do you tell yourself? Are you telling yourself, yeah, but I'm not obeying them even though I'm doing it right now? Are you you still rebelling inside your heart? Because if you are, then you're still not obeying them. What do you say about them in your own head and your thoughts? Regardless of whether you would say that you're a believer or not, if you're growing up in a Christian home, that you're being taught what the Bible says, that this is the role of kids, to obey and honor their parents. Regardless, you are to obey and honor And you will learn that these are really hard to do when you fight against your own self. So you have to ask yourself, too, like, how can I get the log out of my own eye? How should I how should I change my attitude toward my parents? Ultimately, this is to lead you in that struggle to lead you to know that you need Jesus as well, because you rebel against your parents. And for that, you have a wrath against you from a holy God that says that is sin. And it's to lead you to this next thing. Alright kids, I'm going to talk to your parents now. What is the goal of a Christian parent? What is your goal? Are you determined to give your kids all the things you didn't get as a child? Are you determined to not be like your parent? Or to be just like them? Maybe you thought they were really good and you're like, I'm striving to do everything they did. Or is your goal simply to survive the day? (laughs) had that day. These are the desires that can lead us to driving our kids to anger as Ephesians 6 tells us not to do. When they don't fulfill what our desire is. My desire is that when I'm in the store, you're always with me. And when you're running around and acting crazy, you embarrass me. So then I get mad. Well, the the truth is that's not really the correct way to handle that. You're getting mad you're, you're the one that needs to change because you're the one that is acting sinfully to your kid. Because you're, you're, they're getting in the way of your sinful desire. What is your goal as a Christian parent? Stuart Scott points out the goal of the Christian parent is to be faithful to God's Word by His grace and for His glory. Paul addresses the parents through the Father. The Lord tells the parents, specifically the Father, to bring up the children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He also gives a twofold responsibility. And it is possible to underdiscipline or overdiscipline your kids to provoke them to anger when they say, You know, what's the use? I can't get it right. Either he lets me do this or he doesn't let me do this. And there's no clear sign. Parents often say, and I remember hearing this before my My daughter was born, and even even today, I still hear. I just wish there was a book to help me understand how to raise my children, one that gives me the answers and God does offer us this book. He tells us to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now discipline is that, that idea of structuring your life, the idea of teaching your kids how, how to live in this world how to how to to keep a clean house, how to go to work and or get up every day and go to work, how to, how to do your chores, how to be respectful to other people, how to obey your boss. These are, these are the, the discipline and, and, and structuring of your life. And the Lord teaches you that so that you can teach them that. But he also says that there's a, an instruction of the Lord. And that is literally meaning to place or set in the mind. So you are training the heart of your child as you teach your children rightly about God and man and Satan and the world and life. You're giving them a biblical worldview. And as believing parents, we can do this for our own children because the Bible does this for us. It says, uh, oops, I went too far. Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen. I didn't put it in here. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We are taught what God requires of us, and that's the standard. We are reproved and convicted when we don't live up to that standard. And then we're corrected and told how to get out of that mess by obeying the standard. And we're trained in the disciplined ways of righteousness that God requires. And when we are receiving of that as parents, we are able to give that to our kids. And that is done for us through the Holy Spirit when we sit under preaching, when we study the Word of God ourselves. Once again, if you're not paying attention to yourself, getting the log out of your own eye, then you're not able to help your children. Children are a blessing from the Lord, and one of the ways they're a blessing is that they are a means of sanctification to us as parents. What is your goal as a Christian parent? Stuart Scott says again, in Christ, through the power of the Spirit, we have the great hope that we can be faithful whether our children are faithful or not. Now the last section is the work section. And I'm going to go through this very quickly for time because we've already gone a while. The focus of this passage is for employees to work for your employer as you would for Christ. As if Christ were your boss. Not just to be a people pleaser or to be seen by man so that you can get the promotion or get the accolades. But to do your work as if you're doing it to honor the Lord. And then it says for employers, you should treat your employees well knowing that their true master is your master. The master. And he will hold you accountable for the way you treat his servants. So if you're a boss, you should treat those who are under you the way that Christ would treat them. Loving and kind and and holding them to account, but in in a way that is desiring of them to be successful. In the same respect, if you're not working to die to self, then you will fight the needless battles that will have no lasting positive impacts on your work. It all begins with us. So... When our relationships are broken, it's because we think too highly of ourselves a lot of times. Or somebody in that relationship does. And when our relationships are being mended, it's because we are putting ourselves in the proper perspective. We are humbling ourselves and putting others first. And putting God first. The Spirit brings to mind Christ and the way He successfully lived a life of dying to self and living to the glory of God. He is our example. And he is our substitute because he died for the ways that you and I have not obeyed the law. Your only hope in relationships is that Christ already lived for you and died for you and calls you to follow him in his ways. The Holy Spirit gives you the ability to do that in his power and strength and wisdom. So let's ask these questions. In regard to difficulty in relationships, ask yourself these questions Am I the one who is more offended? Or is it God? When we ask ourselves in conflict, a lot of things are put in the right perspective. Am I the one that's offended? Or is God the one that is offended? Number two, am I seeking what I think is best or what God says is best? Am I seeking what is best or what God says is best? Number three, am I faithfully following what I am being taught? Convicted of, corrected by, trained in? Or am I trying to do it my own way? And the last question is, how can I love God and others in this? These questions are simple to write down. We can make notes of these. We can go back and look at them. But actually doing these in the midst of the situation is the hard part. We have to remember these things. We have to say, well, what is the log that I need to see first? May God grant us to remember that He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Let's pray. Father, as I, as I pray, and I pray for this beloved body of, of RCC, that is your body, that is your church, I want to say the same prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians 1. And God, I pray on behalf of those here, Because of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints, I want to give thanks for them, and I do not want to cease giving thanks for them, remembering them in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which you have called them, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Lord, help us to know that that power is in us through the Holy Spirit. And you put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is your body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord, may we walk by the Spirit as we strive in our relationship.